my faith go down. If anything, it made my faith even stronger because it was in those times where I take a lot of things for granted, I think, in my faith. But in those times of doubt, it made me like really look and say, okay, why do I believe this? And what I've found is that I've actually come out stronger in my faith on the other side. And many of you have shared some of those same experiences with me. And, and so what we've seen over the last few weeks is that, um, one, there is room for doubt and that that isn't a bad thing. Um, but we've also seen that there are actually very compelling reasons to believe the claims of Christianity. Uh, like, we don't have to check our brain right there at the door when we come in here and worship. Like, there's a reason why Jesus says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. He wants us to engage our mind in our faith as well. And so we don't have to set that over to the side when we come here and worship and just kind of take this intellectual leap off of a a cliff of blind faith. There are reasons and there is reason behind what we believe, behind our, our faith in God as the creator of all things. There is reason and there are reasons behind our belief in the accuracy and the authority of Scripture. We, we can be confident in why we believe what we believe. And I think that this gives us assurance in our own times when we struggle through periods of doubt. I think it also gives us confidence as we are investing ourselves into our one life, as, as we are having conversations with people who are living far from God. Maybe your one life, you know, that person um, that, that you are pouring your life into by developing a friendship with them, uh, by, by, you know, discovering their stories and listening to what they believe and where they've been and, and discerning next steps. As you are pouring into your one life, chances are they're going to bring up some of the very same questions about faith that maybe you've had to wrestle with. Some of the very same things that we've been talking about through this series. And what you're doing is you are pouring into this person, you are giving them a safe place for them to ask questions that maybe they felt like they couldn't ask a Christian before. And, and hopefully you have the confidence to say, yeah, there's reasonable answers to some of these questions that you have. And, and you may not know them right now. You may have to say, hey, let me get back to you on that. If, if you were here last week, we saw a video from our spiritual discovery groups. Um, spiritual discovery groups are, are groups of people who are skeptics about the Christian faith. Um, they're not followers of Jesus, but they're interested in having spiritual conversations. And so they get together and they talk through some of their questions about faith. And they're led by one person or a couple of people who are Christians. And, and so their job is not necessarily just to be the answer board, but to help spark good discussion. Um, but, but there comes a time in each one of these groups where they do, you know, the group members are just like, no, what do, what do you believe as a Christian about these things? And one of the things that we heard in that video is that, uh, that sometimes even the spiritual discovery group leaders don't have answers to the questions that people are asking. But what they do is they say, can you give me a couple of weeks to do some research about this? Uh, one of our, our, our group leaders, this didn't make the video, but he, he said um, in, in the interview that million-dollar questions deserve more than a five-cent answer. I think there's a lot of truth to that. Million-dollar questions deserve a lot more than a five-cent answer. A lot of times as Christians, we're really good at giving five-cent bumper sticker answers. But people are looking for a little bit more to hang on to than that. And he said, what I found is that if somebody asks a legitimate, honest question, 
they don't mind at all if I say, that's really good. Can I get back to you in a couple of weeks? They're not going to look at us and be like, see, that just blows the whole thing up. You don't even know how to defend your faith. No, they're legitimately wanting to know, and they're okay with us saying, that's a really good question. Let me take some time to get back to you. But as you are pouring into your one life, you're giving them the space and, 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 the, and the place to feel like they have confidence to just explore some of these things with you. And, and one of the questions that your one life may have, maybe you've asked it before too, one of those questions might sound something like this. Why do Christians say that Jesus is the Son of God? Why do Christians say that Jesus is the Son of God? If somebody asked you that question, how would you answer? What are the things that you would point to? What would you say? They may follow up the question with something like, um, did you know that Jesus actually never claimed divinity? He never claimed to be God? That, that that label was actually placed on him after his death by people who just wanted to elevate his status and his moral teachings? A skeptic once said, Jesus never actually claimed to be the Son of God. In fact, he, he, if he knew that you guys were worshiping him today, he would roll over in his grave. But here's the thing. <laughs> He's not in the grave anymore. And that changes everything. And so tonight, we're going to be looking at some compelling reasons to believe that Jesus was the Son of God. We're going to be looking at some of the evidence that backs up his claim. And, and then we're going to see how all of this has huge implications and power to change our lives even today. And so the first question that I want us to explore tonight is, did Jesus really claim to be the Son of God? Did Jesus really claim to be the Son of of God, or is that something that was given to him um, long after his death by people who wanted to elevate his, his status? Now, here's the thing. You can read all through the New Testament. You can read through the, the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. You can read all through the, the New Testament over and over and over, and, and you will never find a place where Jesus says the words, I am God. Like, we don't have written record of Jesus putting those three words together in that precise sequential order. However, that is a far cry from saying that Jesus never claimed to be God. The truth is, Jesus had a lot of other ways to make that claim, and he took advantage of all of those opportunities that he had. In other words, in every way that mattered, Jesus claimed clearly and directly to be God. In every way that mattered, Jesus claimed clearly and directly to be God. I, I included some scripture references in your bulletin. Um, if, if you're not getting a bulletin during this series, I encourage you to grab one on your way out. I've been putting some more detailed notes in there. We won't have time to get to everything that I put in that bulletin tonight. There were a couple of things that, that had to, to make the cut um, in, in order to get this in time. Um, but, but you can go back through and you can read through some of those scriptures that I put in there uh, on your own this week. But I want, to, I want to look at just a couple of them briefly here. The first passage is Matthew chapter 16, um, verse 13 through 17, and you can follow along up on the screens. This is the account that, that Matthew records. He says, when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? There was a lot of talk about Jesus, and so he just asked them, who are people saying that I am? And they replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, uh, Jeremiah, are one of the prophets. And then Jesus gets to the main point in verse 15, but what about you, he asked, you've been traveling around with me for a year, year and a half, 
Who do you say I am? And Simon Peter answered, You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed um, to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. So we see in this that Jesus is very clearly affirming that he is the Son of God. He could have very easily told Peter, no, that's not who I am. You can't say that, but that's not what he did. He, he affirmed it. Now, someone might push back and they might say, well, of course, he's claiming to be uh, the Son of God, but we're all sons and daughters of God, right? Like, aren't we just all sons and daughters of God? Isn't that what you believe as a, as a Christian? But Jesus is making a unique claim about his identity here. Notice, he's not saying that he is a son of God. He's not affirming that he is just a son of God. He is affirming that he is the son of God. There's a big difference there. Let's look at another passage that kind of makes this a little bit more clear. It's in John chapter 5. Jesus is challenged for healing someone on the Sabbath because evidently that was a bad thing. <laughs> and so people come and they, they challenge him on this. And in his response to this challenge, Jesus equates the work he is doing to the work of his heavenly Father. Look at it with me. John chapter 5, starting in verse 17. In his defense, Jesus said to them, My Father is always at work, at his work, to this very day, and I too am working. Verse 18. For this reason, they tried all the more to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. These experts in the Jewish law and, and, and in the Jewish religion, they knew exactly what Jesus was claiming. He was claiming to be the unique son of God who shared the very nature of divinity with the heavenly father. Like Jesus was not claiming to be adopted into God's family. That's what happens to us. When we place our faith in Jesus and his life, death, and resurrection, we are adopted into God's family. But that's not what is going on here. Jesus is claiming to be God in flesh. Later in, in John 10, 30, Jesus is again talking to the Pharisees, and he makes another bold claim when he says, I and the Father are one. I and the Father are one. Now stick with me here because we're going to get into a little bit of Greek, and this is fun. In the Greek language, there were um, three different ways of identifying uh, a, a verb. Uh, it's the masculine, uh, the feminine, and the neutered. And in, in, in the Greek word that Jesus uses here when he says, I and the Father are one, that Greek word one is neuter, not masculine. And so he was not saying, I and the Father are the same person. Instead, what Jesus is saying is that I and the Father are of the same essence. We are of the same nature. His listeners knew exactly what he meant by that. And so what they did is they picked up stones to kill him. And in verse 32, Jesus says to them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of these are you about to stone me for? I've done a lot of good things. Which one of the good things are you about ready to stone me for? And the response was this. We are not stoning you for any of the good work, but for blasphemy. Don't miss this. Because you, a mere man, claim to be God. 
they are recognizing that Jesus, in making this claim, is saying that he is God. Now, don't you think that this would have been a perfect opportunity for Jesus to say, hey, guys, um, I think there's been a bit of a misunderstanding here. Let's just put the rocks down and talk through this just a little bit. That's not what I'm saying. But that's not what he does. In fact, he doubles down on his claim that he is the Son of God, true deity, and equal in nature to God the Father. I'm telling you, they didn't kill Jesus because they liked him. They killed Jesus because of these claims that he made about himself claims that he and God were one. I could say so much more about this, but I think it's safe to say that while Jesus did not go around bragging to people about being God or about being the Son of God, he made it clear over and over and over in the things that he affirmed and the things that he did that he was the unique Son of God, that he is God in human flesh. Question number two. Did Jesus back up his claim to be the Son of God with solid evidence? And this is an important question, right? Because the truth is, is that anybody can go around and like say that they're God. I could walk around saying that I am God. You could walk around saying that you're God. There are special institutions in our country for people who make such a claim as this, walking around saying that they are God. But that doesn't make it true. People can claim it all they want, but that doesn't make it true. There needs to be evidence that backs up their claim. And Jesus had plenty of evidence that followed in his path. Uh, Let's look quickly at a few of them, and I want to spend the bulk of our time on the resurrection. First, there was the Messianic prophecies. Uh, This, to me, um, man, it blows me away. You know, it's one of the things we talked, we looked at um, scripture last week and why we can talk about it. And, you know, I mentioned that even as I go through my own seasons and periods of doubt where I just look and say, man, is it, can this really be real? Like, one of the things that I look back on is, is scripture. And one of the things in scripture that speaks so much to me are the Messianic prophecies. I mean, these are, these are books that have been dated hundreds of years before Jesus that talk about Jesus and his coming and how it was going to happen and all of these messianic prophecies that were fulfilled. Jesus fulfilled so, he fulfilled them all, but there are countless prophecies about the coming Messiah. I listed a few of them in your bulletin so you can go back and read later, but I want to just hit a couple of them. Micah 5.2, written hundreds of years before the birth of Jesus, say that Jesus was going to be born in Bethlehem. Isaiah 53 Um, Isaiah 53 is an interesting chapter to me. It's a chapter in Scripture that is so controversial that many Jewish rabbis will pass right over it because of how directly it points to Jesus. And so they just skip right over that because it validates Jesus as the Messiah. Isaiah 53 predicted hundreds of years before, um, before death by crucifixion was even invented, right? Crucifixion wasn't even invented, and Isaiah 53 is talking about crucifixion. It was written 700 years before Jesus would experience crucifixion. Isaiah prophesied that Jesus would be pierced for our iniquities and crucified as a substitute for our sin. Hundreds of years before crucifixion was even a thing, Isaiah said this is how Jesus was going to die. Put it another way, Isaiah saying that Jesus would die by crucifixion is like someone in the year 1318 predicting that you would drive your car to church tonight. (laughs) There's no context for such a thing. He had no idea what crucifixion was. 
why someone would be nailed to a cross, pierced for our iniquities. And yet he wrote the very words of God 700 years before Jesus would experience his death and our salvation. In addition to fulfilling the prophecies of a divine Messiah, Jesus backed up his claims to deity by doing a variety of miracles, from walking on water to healing the sick to raising the dead over and over and over. Jesus performed miraculous signs not to just impress people and for the wow factor, but as a way to reveal who he really was, which is the true Son of God. There's one miracle in particular that stands out above the rest, and that's Jesus' resurrection. You see, Jesus knew that people would doubt him. They would be skeptical of his claims. Even some of his own followers would be. And so he pointed to the resurrection as the ultimate trump card to his claims. He he says uh, in, in Matthew 12, 39, Jesus says that he would give them one sign, the sign of the prophet Jonah. And in the very next verse, he explains what that is. He says, For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Jesus was saying that his resurrection would be proof of all of his other claims. That that would validate everything he claimed to be. Later, Paul would say that without the resurrection, our faith is worth nothing and we are still dead in our sins it says that if it weren't for the resurrection, we are all just a bunch of fools. What are we doing? And so there's a lot riding on the resurrection. And so the question is, what proof do we have that the resurrection actually happened? And, and believe it or not, we actually have quite a bit of proof, not just biblical, but even outside sources. Now, first of all, the, the tomb was empty. And if you look through not only Scripture, but even works of antiquity, no one disputes that the tomb was empty. There is absolutely no one that disputes, biblical or non-biblical, disputes that the tomb was empty. They dispute what happened to the body, but no one questions that the tomb was empty. And, and here's the thing, absolutely no one had good reason for saying that someone stole or moved Jesus' body. All right, follow along with me here. See, the Romans were the one who crucified them, and so they certainly wouldn't want to make it look like he had risen. <laughs> that doesn't look good on them. The Jewish leaders wanted Jesus dead in the first place, and they wanted everyone just to forget about this guy, and so they wouldn't have taken the body and, you know, furthered his myth or mysteriousness, his following. They wouldn't have done that. They wanted him to stay dead. Also, if there was a body to be found, you better believe that it would have been put on display to squash the upstart Christian movement that was already threatening their authority. And the thing is, is that everybody knew where the tomb was. And so if there was a body, they could have produced it at any time, but there wasn't one, and they couldn't find it. And so if the Romans wouldn't have wanted to steal it, and the Jewish leaders certainly didn't want to, then that leaves the disciples, the ones the Roman soldiers initially pinned it on in the first place. It was his followers that came and and took him. Maybe they moved the body. But the truth is that right after the crucifixion, they were disillusioned. They were terrified after the crucifixion, and they were hiding away in a room trying to decide what to do next. They were grief-stricken, and Peter in particular was full of guilt and shame for denying Jesus three times during his crucifixion, and and all but abandoning Jesus in this greatest time of need. 
And so the disciples didn't have the motivation. They didn't have a good reason. They didn't even have the ability to overcome the Roman guards who were standing at the tomb in order to steal Jesus' body. And even if they did move the body, then they would all have to lie about it without anybody cracking. They would have been persecuted because of this lie. And many of them would eventually die because of this lie, if that's what it was. They would die as martyrs for a belief that they knew was false. And to me, that just doesn't make sense. As the French physicist and mathematician Pascal once said, I believe those witnesses that get their throats cut. Hmm. Next, the risen Jesus was seen by eyewitnesses. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 that after his resurrection, Jesus appeared to Peter, then to the rest of the disciples, and then to a larger group after that. And then he says something really important that we kind of touched on a little bit last week. He says in verse 6, after that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living. Now, why would Paul say that? I think what he's saying is if this seems far-fetched, I get it. I get it. C.S. Lewis talks about um, oftentimes we, in, in, in our current time, we, we suffer from chronological snobbery. We, we suffer from this thing where we look at people from, from previous times and we think, oh, I wouldn't be so foolish as to believe something like that, when actually um, they wouldn't be so foolish as to believe that either. Like, don't think that people heard the story of a crucifixion and they were like, oh, I mean, that makes perfect sense. No, the story of a man coming back from the grave, a man who is dead coming back to life, would, would leave just as many people back then scratching their head as it would today. It doesn't make any sense. And, and so Paul knew that people were going to have questions, and so he says, there were a lot of people that saw this. Many of them are still living. And you can go back. We know where they are. They're in Jerusalem. They're part of the church. You can go back and ask them yourself. I don't think he would have done that if all of this were made up. There are so many things, again, that we could look at that validate the resurrection, which ultimately validates Jesus' claim of deity. And if you want to talk more about that, if you have some, some questions, I'd love to sit down and chat with you. There, there are volumes um, that, that I could point you to to read that are fascinating. But we don't have time to get into those tonight. But the truth is, everything hinges on the resurrection. Everything. As pastor and theologian Timothy Keller writes in his book, The Reason for God, he says, if Jesus rose from the dead, then you have to accept all that he said. If he didn't rise from the dead, then why worry about any of what he said? The issue on which everything hangs is not whether or not you like his teaching, but whether or not he rose from the dead. Everything rides on the resurrection. And we can be confident that it is more than just mere legend or myth that developed over the years. So we've looked at a lot tonight. I appreciate you guys hanging with me. You all still with me? Everybody still awake? Yeah? Okay. I know this is heady stuff, isn't it? But I, I hope that you're finding it just as fascinating as, as I am. I've really enjoyed study time on, on developing these, these sermons. The final question that I want us to look at today is, why should Jesus' claim to be the Son of God matter? 
Like, why does this matter to us today? And it matters because it really does change everything. In his, in his powerful book, The Case for Christ, Lee Strobel shares a list of implications that Jesus being the Son of God has on those who believe. And I want to end with this list. He says, number one, if Jesus is the Son of God, then his teachings are more than just good ideas from a wise teacher. They're more than that. They are divine insights on which I can confidently build my life. Number two, if Jesus sets the standard of morality, I can now have an unwavering foundation for my choices and decisions rather than basing them on ever-shifting sand of self-centeredness. If Jesus did rise from the dead and he's still alive today and available for me to encounter on a personal basis. If Jesus conquered death, he can open the door of eternal life for me too. If Jesus has divine power, he has the supernatural ability to guide me, help me, and transform me as I follow him. If Jesus personally knows the pain of loss and suffering, he can comfort and encourage me in the midst of my turbulence in this world that is corrupted by sin. If Jesus loves me, as he says, he has my best interest at heart. That means I have nothing to lose and everything to gain by committing myself to him and his purposes. If Jesus is who he claims to be, then as my creator, he rightfully deserves my allegiance, obedience, and worship. If Jesus is who he claimed to be, then that changes everything, and it has the power to change everything in your life too. Church, the evidence from history strongly backs up the fact that Jesus is the Son of God, and that is good news for me and for you and for all who believe and place their faith in him. And if you're here tonight and you've yet to place your faith in Jesus as the Son of God, and your personal Lord and Savior. And my question is, what are you waiting for? What are you waiting for? Let tonight be the night that you take that first step of faith and you find new life in Him.